Amen. Well, it's so great to be back. It's been uh, it's been a while, so I thought I'd start with one of my classic hilarious jokes. <laughs> Look at the time. <laughs> so a group of uh, 40-year-old girlfriends were having a kind of a reunion, and they were trying to decide where they should meet for dinner. And so finally it was agreed they should meet at the Ocean View restaurant because they kind of liked uh, flirting with all the, the male waiters there. Well, 10 years later, they were in their 50s, and they, they again were discussing where they should meet for dinner, and it was agreed that they should meet at the Ocean View restaurant because the food was really, really good and the service was great. Then in their 60s, they got together once again and were deciding where they should meet for dinner, and it was agreed they should meet at the Ocean View restaurant because they could eat there in peace and quiet, and the restaurant had a beautiful view of the ocean. Ten years later, in their 70s, the same group got together and was discussing where they should meet for dinner, and they agreed they should meet at the Ocean View restaurant because the restaurant was wheelchair accessible and even had an elevator. And ten years later, at the age, in their 80s, the group was again discussing where they should meet for dinner, and finally it was agreed that they should meet at the Ocean View restaurant because they'd never been there before. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let me, uh, we're having a little bit of uh, technical difficulties here. Let me get the uh, live streamers up uh, and uh, running here. There we go. All right. Well, we're back in uh, Nehemiah, and uh, we, are, uh, we are looking at uh, chapter 13. It's our last chapter in the book. Uh, we will probably have one more uh, message in this series to kind of wrap it all up, summarize and review what we've uh, talked about. But today we're in chapter 13. You know, for most of my uh, grade school years, my family lived in Connecticut. My father worked in New York City. I think you've heard me talk about that before. Uh, but we made frequent trips to Manhattan, and I have a lot of fond memories of the city and those nostalgic uh, feelings, you know, as I think back on. That's one of the reasons that I love visiting uh, the city, and Winnie and I go back often whenever we're in the Northeast for ministry. But one of my memories as a kid is, is walking along Fifth Avenue and pausing to watch the lifelike mannequins in the store windows. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever been to the city and done that? At first, you look at these mannequins, and they look like actual mannequins. But if you watch closely, you will see one of them blink, and you realize these are actual people, real, live human beings. It's always fascinating to me to see just how still these models could be. I mean, they would fool most of the people that weren't familiar with the custom uh, in New York City of using live mannequins uh, because they were just so stationary. In fact, sometimes tourists would gather in front of the windows and they would try to get these models to break their concentration. You know, they would make faces at them, they would poke fun at them, they'd bang on the windows, anything they could do to try to get them to flinch. But these models always held their ground. It was amazing. I have vivid memories of that as a kid. Uh, there's something that was more important to these mannequins than pleasing the people on the other side of the glass. See, what was important to them was pleasing their boss, their employer, who was paying them to stand perfectly still in those windows. As I think about that childhood memory, it occurs to me that for us to live a focused life, 
a life untouched by worldliness around us, we have to ignore the people on the other side of the glass. Amen? We've got to ignore and recognize that all of the influences around us, no matter what they may try to do to distract us or draw us into a pagan mindset and worldview, uh, cannot dissuade us from our singular focus on the Lord and the Word of God. The question is, how can God's people live godly lives without allowing the pagan world around us to negatively affect us? That's the question at hand. And that was the question that Nehemiah and God's people needed to wrestle with. Uh, the question for them was, how can the Jewish people preserve the spiritual reforms that they had worked so hard to implement? So let's put this in context. Remember, the people of Israel started returning to the land after a couple hundred years, really, of being in exile. Uh, they had rebuilt the temple. They had rebuilt the walls. They had uh, regathered, filled in the gates. They had regathered in the land. They had reinstituted all of the uh, temple and sacrificial practices. They even had a, a great big celebratory dedication that we looked at last time uh, we were together. And so now things were kind of, quote-unquote, back to the way they should be, back to the old normal. And yet, how can they maintain that distinctiveness from the pagan cultures all around them? You know, time and again, Israel capitulated to the foreign lands and the false gods and the, the bad influences around them. How can Israel, at this new day in their life, point people to Yahweh by their holy behavior? How can they avoid blending in and looking like the world around them? You know, in our uh, previous study, if you've been with us a while, through the book of Acts uh, a year or so ago, we saw that in the early days of Christianity, something was different about Christians. Uh, the early church got the attention of the world around them. In fact, at one point in Acts chapter 17, the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica said that these early Christians were turning the world upside down. Uh, I wonder if that's happening much anywhere, any, anymore. You know, here we are 2,000 years later, and the church, uh, at least in America and most of Western culture, has become indistinguishable from the world. Well, similarly, the Jews in Nehemiah's day, even though they were safely back in the land and they just had this glorious celebration, they were in danger of allowing pagan cultures around them to turn them away from the God who saved them. Rather than stealing their minds on the task at hand, like those models in the window, they were allowing all the people around them to distract them from uh, what they were supposed to be doing. You look in chapter 13 at verse 4, and you, you see it all really started with an unholy alliance. We talked about Tobiah about, way back in chapter 4, I think it was. But we read here in chapter 13, before this, Eliashib, the high priest, uh, the priest was having authority over the storms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. An unholy alliance is always the beginning of a downward spiral before the Lord. When God's people begin to adopt an inclusive worldview instead of an exclusive one, it normally does not go well. There were a lot of problems in Israel at that time. Nehemiah came back to visit to see how things were going, and he discovered that they were allowing foreigners to have access to restricted areas within the city and in the temple area. They were acting like pagans by neglecting the tithe and by doing business 
on the Sabbath and actually doing business with the, the pagans. They were allowing, did we lose our mic? Nope, okay. They were allowing their children to hang out with pagans and, and, and do the things that the pagan cultures were doing. They were even allowing their children to marry pagans. There were a lot of problems, and it all centered around this unholy alliance. So if you turn with me to chapter 13, I want to talk about exclusive living in an inclusive world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be unique, distinct. We, as God's people, and God has a people group in every age that is his center stage, his primary uh, envoys to, to, to bring him glory and spread the good news, spread the gospel. You know, in, in, in Noah's day, it was Noah, it was Abraham, it was the children of Israel in large Moses during that time. Uh, today, it's the church, Christians. But we're supposed to be separate from the world, even though we live in the world. So two questions that I want us to consider as we walk through this passage. Number one, is it okay for God's people to associate with just anyone? Is it okay to associate with just anyone? Secondly, are there certain people that should be avoided by God's people? That's the question at hand. We go back to Nehemiah 13. And Nehemiah says, So it was when they had heard the law, after Nehemiah came there and began to call them on the carpet about some of these problems, that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. The Bible calls this the doctrine of separation. And I've uh, posted this week at the Not By Works free section. We have a free section on our online store. I encourage you to check it out. Lots of great documents. We're adding more every week. But I've posted two articles this week on the doctrine of separation. I encourage you to check those out. They're PDFs. You can pass them around. But uh, before we look at some of the principles of separation that we see implemented in Nehemiah's day here in chapter 13, I want to define some terms. I want to define exclusive and inclusive, particularly as it relates to the context of eternal salvation. Now, we've talked about this before in various settings. Typically, we've talked about it on a Wednesday night, I know for sure. Uh, but there are four broad approaches to eternal salvation. When you get right down to it, uh, how, how, and you're answering the question, how can people go to heaven? How, how can we have eternal life when we die, right? There's four ways that this has been addressed, broadly speaking. I mean, you can get really granular and look at all the false doctrines and false religions and false teachings, but broadly speaking, there are four ways. And it all begins by understanding the problem. The problem is man is a sinner, and sinful man cannot enter heaven. So what's the answer? How can sinful man be forgiven and have the penalty of sin paid for on his behalf so that he can go to heaven. How do you get to heaven? That's the idea. Well, the first way that people have suggested this happens is through what's called religious pluralism. They understand that there is a problem, that man is a sinner, but they basically say anything goes. Anything will get you there. You can get there on your own merit. Maybe you're just inherently good. You don't have a problem um, uh, or good enough. Uh, Islam Buddhism, any other religion, multiple religions are all road, same, get, get to the same place. Your own good works and effort can get you there. All of this or any of the above, they say, will get you to heaven. But the Bible, of course, teaches this is wrong. There's no such thing as religious pluralism. This, these things will not get you uh, to heaven. Then there is evangelical inclusivism. This is what we're kind of talking about today. The, the basis for inclusive living is this worldview. 
And they say, yeah, man is a sinner. And yeah, they believe in the historical Jesus. They even believe he died and rose again. But that's where they depart from the biblical worldview because they say that anything, faith in anything, will get you there. It doesn't matter. As long as you're sincere, as long as you're earnest, as long as you have faith, it could be in Muhammad or Buddha or you know, Confucius or anybody else. It doesn't have to be in Jesus. But they would say, we're still evangelical because we understand that Jesus died and his sins make it you know, cover everybody, even if you've never heard of him. But the Bible teaches that faith must be exclusive faith in Jesus Christ. Inclusivism says faith in Jesus Christ alone is not the only way. It's not the only way. Uh, in my latest book, Spirit of the False Prophet, I have a whole dialogue that I did in there with AI Jesus, where AI twice, in answer to my prompts, is saying, well, you know, I'm not going to say for sure, you know, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter who your faith is in. And that is satanic to the core. The Bible does not teach inclusivism. And then the third view, which is equally false, is what might be called secular universalism. So you've got pluralism, all religions are get you there. Jesus may even be a myth in their view, but all religions will get you there. Evangelical inclusivism says, no, we believe there's a historical Jesus, and we even believe he died, but that, beyond that, it doesn't matter who you believe in. You, any, any religion, as long as is, is, we, there was a Jesus, any religion will get you there no, by, no matter what name you call it. But secular universalism really is just heaven. I mean, they don't believe man has a problem. Everybody gets to heaven. There's no problem to overcome. There's no hell there's no sin. There's no penalty for sin. We all go to heaven. And of course, the Bible is quite clear that that's not the case. So the, the fourth view is the biblical view, and that's biblical exclusivism. And that is the situation that everyone is born a sinner. Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned, Romans 5.12. There's nobody righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Right? So man is sinful, but God provided the remedy when he sent his son Jesus Christ uh, to the earth to live a perfect, holy, sinless life, die in our place on the cross, rising again the third day, and then he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. And it's by faith alone, in him alone, that you can have eternal life. And notice I underlined the word alone twice. That's not just being redundant. That's, that's critical to understand. It's faith alone, not faith plus turning from your sins or faith plus promising to be good or faith plus surrendering to the Lordship of Christ or faith plus making Him Lord or faith plus pledging allegiance to Him or faith plus acknowledging uh, or uh, you know, forsaking your sins, right? It's faith alone. We're sinners. We need a Savior. It's a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. How do you receive that gift? By faith. But it's also faith alone in Christ alone. A lot of people will tell you, yeah, I believe it's faith in Christ alone. But, you know, there's some little asterisks too. You know, it's, it's, I'm, st I'm still trusting in my ability to persevere. Or I'm still trusting in my baptism. Or I'm still trusting in my heritage. Or I'm trusting in my, uh, my ability to, to live a pretty righteous life in order to prove that I'm really saved. No, no, it's faith alone in Christ alone. And that's biblical exclusivism. And that worldview as it relates to eternal salvation undergirds then how we live the Christian life. If you don't understand the exclusivity of the gospel, then you're not going to understand the exclusivity of Christian living. And you're going to be uh, in danger of capitulating to the pagan world around us. But 
what the Bible teaches is that once you've by faith trusted in Christ, you become part of the family of God. You're different. You're born again, spiritually reborn, as Jesus told Nicodemus. You, you now have a different spiritual DNA. You're, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're a child of God, John 1.12. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can change that. And as such, now that you're on that team, remember the Bible divides every person on planet Earth into two categories. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. That's it. Before you came to faith in Christ, you're a child of the devil. If you die in unbelief, Jesus tells us in John 8, 24, if you die in your sins, you're going to spend eternity in hell. So, But once you, by faith, become part of the family of God, now you're in a different family. You're in a different group. And so then the question becomes, as long as we're topside this earth, as long as we're living out our days, either until the rapture or until we go the way of all flesh, how do we live? We likewise live exclusively. We have a job to do. We have a, a reason, a purpose for being here. Um, I know we all want the Lord come to come back any day now. We want it to be today. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, with all that's going on in the world, all the evil that's happening. I hope that you are more than ever before filled with this blessed hope and this eager, eager anticipation of the soon coming of our Lord. But that doesn't give us the right to, to give up, to move to a mountaintop, dig a hole, climb in, and just wait. We've got to keep doing what the Lord wants us to do. And that's what uh, the people of Israel needed to do after they made all of these reforms. And so the exclusive living that we're talking about this morning is based upon our exclusive salvation. So as I look at Nehemiah 13, I see three dangers of inclusive living and three benefits of exclusive living. So let's take a look at the dangers first. Number one, inclusive living marginalizes God's word. Inclusive living marginalizes God's word. In other words, inclusive living takes its cue from the world rather than from God's word. It sort of pushes the Bible back in levels of priority, behind a, a cloud or a fog of culture and, 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 and pagan ideas and concepts and worldly philosophies, so that it's no longer central in our life. And so if we look at chapter 13, verse 10, Nehemiah says, I realized that the portions the Levites uh, uh, for the Levites had not been given to them. They were neglecting the tithe, in other words, which was an important part of the biblical mandate for that day. They were neglecting the tithe. Nehemiah goes on to say to the rulers, why is the house of God forsaken? Uh, they were neglecting the tithe, and he rebuked them for it, and so then they brought the tithe uh, of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. So in their day, the Bible, the, their authority was the Torah, the law. And it was very clear in that day that they were under the, the, the law of the tithe. We've talked about this previously. Uh, we're not under that law today. We have the rest of God's revelation. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3, that the law was put in place until Christ came as a steward to kind of help keep order. But now that we're under... Uh, the Holy Spirit's law written on our hearts. We're the only people in human history to this date who have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't true of Old Testament saints, but now it is. It's, it's the unique blessing that happened at Pentecost and happens to every believer since then at the moment of faith. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise the Bible tells us. And because of that, we're no longer under the law. And uh, we, we don't have to worry about the tithe. But at that time, they were marginalizing God's word and capitulating to the cultures around them that they didn't have tithes. 
So if they're not tithing, why do we need to tithe? And they were sort of blending in by neglecting the tithe. Another way they were marginalizing God's word was by neglecting and profaning even the Sabbath. Uh, Nehemiah says, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in the sheaves, loading donkeys and wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. It's another law that they were supposed to keep in their day. Again, we're not under that law. In fact, that's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's never repeated in the New Testament. Uh, but in fact, the fact of the matter is all of the Ten Commandments were related to Israel. And then we have moral laws that are recapitulated in the New Testament, but not the Sabbath. Ever since the, the resurrection of Christ, the church has met on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. Uh, these laws, the Sabbath, the tithe, all of those Old Testament laws will be reinstituted someday when Christ takes the throne and the temple is, the new temple, the glorious Ezekiel temple is rebuilt. But right now, we're not under those laws, but they were. It was their Bible. It was their word of God, and they were marginalizing it. He says, why are you profaning the Sabbath? See, the Jews certainly knew better. They knew what the, the, the word said. These were foundational laws. Yet they allowed the influence of pagan cultures around them to marginalize the Word of God in their midst. God's Word didn't have the same significance, the same powerful presence that it had in past years. And inclusive living marginalizes God's Word. Listen, the Bible is always the first thing that suffers in an inclusivist mindset. And we've seen that happen throughout American church history. You know, in the early days of this country, for a hundred years or so, the Bible was central. Even unbelievers had a respect for the Word of God and a respect for the men of the cloth, as they called them, the reverends. And, and they, they might not have trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, but they understood divine providence. And when the, the circuit-riding preacher would come to town, all of the pe- people in the whole town would gather together at the town square to hear uh, him speak, you know, and... And there was a, a sense in which the Bible was authoritative. But what happened around the, the turn of the 20th century was we began to marginalize the Word of God. And it started in the institutions of higher learning like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and others. It trickled down ultimately through the pulpits to the pew. And by the mid-20th century, most mainline denominations had gone liberal. Most seminaries had gone liberal. They were abandoning the authority of God's Word. The Bible is no longer the infallible standard, the inerrant standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. They still got in their pulpits and read it. You know, they still proclaimed to believe in it, but they marginalized it. They weren't really living uh, by it as truly the only standard. It had been supplanted by secular humanistic thinking. Now, that was all by design. That didn't just happen organically. There were people pulling the strings intentionally to influence churches and seminaries and every other element of society. I talk about that in my last couple of books. But, but the fact is it manifested itself in the church by marginalizing the Word of God. And that's why we've got to fight to hang on to the authority of God's Word, both in the churches and in our personal lives. And there was a great movement in the, in the middle of the 20th century called the Fundamentalist Movement where people were, were breaking off from their denominations over this issue of the centrality of the Word of God. And they were saying, no, 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 we're not going to go that way. We're going to hang on. We're going to hang tight. And uh, I remember doing a study one time uh, as this was, you know, studying how this was happening. You know, at one time, just as an example, there was really one group of Baptist churches in America. After the Civil War, there became a second. uh, But for the longest time, there was just those two. 
And then all of a sudden with the modernist fundamentalist controversies, you had all of these splinter groups. And last time I checked, there were 25 different Baptist denominations of any significant size. 25. Most of those, not all, but most of them started because a group felt like their mother group, their mothership, if you will, was abandoning the authority of God's Word, and they wanted to stand firm. See, we've got to fight to hang on to the authority of God's Word in our lives. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once told a group of new officers, quote, I want you young men always to bear in mind it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. See, the, the Jews had stopped giving attention to the law, to the Word of God. They'd marginalized it. And if we stop giving attention to the Word and capitulating to the secular humanistic ideas around us, the same thing's going to happen. The fire's going to go out. And in large part, it has. We are living in the last of the last days. Uh, and I believe the church has mostly gone apostate. But Paul put it this way in Romans 16. We should uh, avoid those who are teaching contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Separation. Proverbs says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Uh, in other words, we are to draw lines of distinction, not circles of inclusion. And uh, that's a catchphrase that these uh, inclusivist champions love to use. We just need bigger circles. We don't want these lines. That's too divisive and hateful and mean. Just a few weekends ago, Andy Stanley, whom I've talked much about, he's essentially the face of the apostate church. He hosted in his church in North Point, uh, this is Andy Stanley, the son of the late Charles Stanley. He hosted a meeting uh, embracing and welcoming LGBTQ and talking about how the church needs to welcome and embrace them. He had two keynote speakers at this conference, both of whom were men married to other men, in his pulpit preaching and teaching how we need to draw, and he even used this phrase, I've got the quote, I mentioned it last weekend, that we need to draw bigger circles of inclusion. That's the inclusivist mindset. That's not the biblical mindset. The biblical mindset is distinctiveness, to draw lines of distinction, not circles of inclusion, go from the presence of a foolish man. It is impossible to be part of the crowd and still hold the Bible in high regard at the same time. It just can't happen. So number one, it marginalizes God's word. A second danger of inclusive living is that it compromises God's standards. Once you've marginalized the Bible, it's a very slippery slope to simply ignore its commands altogether because it's not front and center. It's kind of buried somewhere in the back. You haven't abandoned it altogether. You're not up there denigrating it like an atheist or a skeptic. Uh, you know, Andy doesn't get up in the pulpit and say, oh, this Bible is horrible. We need to throw it out. Actually, <laughs> I take that back. He kind of did. He kind of talked about how we can't trust the 66 books of the Bible and we shouldn't base our beliefs on the Bible. But, he, but he's not so caustic against the Bible the way skeptics uh, back in the middle of the 20th century started doing, and many still do today. Uh, but they just marginalize it. They kind of put it in a cloud and, and base their decisions on, uh, you know, which way the wind is blowing. So uh, when you marginalize God's word, then you begin to compromise God's standard. Going back to Nehemiah 13, he says, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God? Now in the context here, he's talking about how they were marrying pagan women. 
And they were just completely thumbing their nose at what God's word had said. Uh, he says, so I drove him from me. This is Joyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. I drove them from me. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Not when you understand the concept of exclusivity. See, Paul told Timothy, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. He told the Ephesians, do not be partakers with them. This is a fascinating chapter, Ephesians 5, where he contrasts those who are of the light versus the darkness. We're not like that anymore. We ought to live like children of the light. And then he says, don't be partakers with them. Again, you see throughout the New Testament epistles this contrast between us and them. There, there is an us and there is a them. And we need to recognize the size. Our goal is to bring the them into the us. Our goal is to go into all the world and make disciples, to share the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ, to, to help people become part of the family of God. That's what we want. Instead, most Christians are being dragged into the them. And, and that's inclusive living. Uh, he goes on in Ephesians 5 to say, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Inclusive living compromises God's standards. It's a fundamental goal of inclusivism to eliminate any and all standards. As I said, they want circles of inclusion, not lines of distinction. So inclusivism marginalizes God's words, compromises God's standards, and then thirdly, inevitably, it paganizes God's people. It paganizes God's people. The end result of inclusivism is widespread, universally accepted paganism or worldliness. So again, going back to the marrying pagan wives, Nehemiah was so incredulous that some of the Jews were marrying pagans and raising their children in pagan cultures that he pointed to Solomon as an example of the dangers of failing to separate. He's like, don't you remember Solomon? Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him a king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all of this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? In other words, haven't you learned anything from the past? History can be a great teacher. And, uh, you know, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, boy, God was kind of harsh on Israel, but uh, I think we need to look in the mirror. I mean, like someone said, if, if Paul, the Apostle Paul was alive today, we'd be getting a letter. I mean, there would be definitely a lot to say to the church today as we make some of the same mistakes. We're slow learners. Time and again, Israel didn't learn from their past mistakes. And sadly, the church is following in that same uh, template. Uh, Nehemiah 13, verse 30, I cleanse them of everything pagan. That's exclusivism. That's separation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Always the case. Always the case. When you, when you think that by spending time, valuable, intimate time with unbelievers, that somehow you're going to bring them over, it doesn't usually work that way. See, there's a difference between being friendly and gracious and being friends. The Bible tells us to be friendly and gracious with all. And we need to take the good news to a lost and dying world. But our closest friends, 
the ones we spend the most valuable, intimate time with, the ones that are our confidants, the ones that we trust and get advice from and spend most of our time with, that we are our closest friends, that better not be unbelievers. If it is, we're not, we're not, we're not keeping the, the doctrine of exclusivity. We're violating it. So ask yourself, who do you spend most of your time with and why? And why? See, a lot of times we'll tell ourselves, well, he's such a good friend. I've known him since high school. I've known him since junior high, and we're just, he's my best friend. Well, when's the last time you talked to him about Jesus and talked to him about the fact that he needs to trust in Jesus or he's going to spend eternity in hell? If your time spent with unbelievers isn't focused on evangelism, that's a problem. That's a problem because, as we're going to see, we're not supposed to be friends with the world. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, sometimes... This exclusive issue applies to even believers, right? We'll come back to that in a second. But James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Who are your closest friends? See, far from being a compassionate notion, the way the devil has convinced most people it is, inclusivism is actually quite dangerous. It is very dangerous. That's why John the Apostle said, when someone comes to your house and knocks on the door and they don't uh, have sound doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor even greet him. Because when you do, you're sharing in his evil deeds. That's because there is a certain satanic element to worldliness. And even though these people may be nice, they may not realize they're pawns in a higher game. There is a spiritual battle at play, and there's only two sides to that spiritual battle. And when you welcome and embrace satanic doctrine, no matter what your intentions are, it's not, it's not good. And, and, and John says, don't even let them into your house. <laughs> don't even let them into your house because it's, it's a protection thing. See, that's the thing about God's commands is that they're for our own good. Remember John said, his commandments are not burdensome, right? We somehow have this thought that God's commands are just, you know, burdensome. They're, they're, they're laborious. They're like this killjoy. You know, that's not it at all. I mean, think about in the garden. God made man with free will. And he said, you can have anything you want in this garden. Anything you want. It's all yours. Enjoy. Except for one. Well, that doesn't seem so burdensome, does it? I mean, we can have every fruit we want except for one. And why did he say that? Not as some kind of a sick carrot to try to tease us. He did it for our own good because we have free will. He didn't create us as a bunch of robots that had no free will. There had to be a choice. And he said, I'm warning you. I love you so much. I don't want you to die. If you eat that one, you're going to die. So it was not, you know, it was for our own good. It was a command, but it was for our own good. It was for our protection. And the same thing is true to this day of all of the commands of Scripture. They're for our own good. You, James says, uh, the same uh, James, the brother of our Lord, who said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. He said, look, when you hear and do the Word of God, you're going to be blessed. When you hear the Word of God and don't do it, you're not going to be blessed. See, the commands are for our own good. That's, uh, that's the, the benefit, ultimately, of, of, of exclusive living and the danger of inclusive living. So we, we, want, to, we want to separate and, uh, and heed the Word of God, not legalistically or not uh, because God is just some kind of a sheriff that's ready to shoot us if we step out of line but he wants what's best for us if we follow his ways it'll go well sadly most of the church today isn't 
doing that. So the dangers of inclusive living, it marginalizes God's word, it compromises God's standards, and it paganizes God's people. But there are some benefits on the other side of exclusive living. Exclusive living, living takes away, it takes seriously the doctrine of separation. It doesn't just wink and nod at it. It says, no, this is a biblical doctrine. Uh, and so when you remain separate from the pagan influences and worldly influences around you, the word of God is going to remain central in your life and you're going to see more uh, clearly. Paul said that this is especially true the closer we get to the Lord's return. He said evil men and impostors are going to get worse and worse. Deception is going to get worse and worse. So now more than ever, we need to insulate ourselves and our families from the evil world around us, lest we get swept up in the tide. He told Timothy, continue in the things which you have learned. This is the last thing Paul wrote. It was so important to him that he wanted to leave it last in the mind of young Timothy. He says, continue in the things which you have learned. Where did he learn them from? The Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. Continue in that. So hang on to the Word of God. He goes on to say in chapter 4, why? Because the time's going to come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. And they're going to turn their ears away from those Holy Scriptures and be turned aside to fables. So exclusive living is more important than ever in this age where most churches are turning away from the truth. So the number one benefit is that exclusive living elevates God's Word. It puts it back in its rightful place of centrality. It pushes everything else that's seeking to have an influence on us, like Paul says in Colossians 2, to the background and helps us navigate life through the lens of Scripture above all else. So Nehemiah said, I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. In other words, I opened the Word of God, went to the law, and talked to them about the importance of the Sabbath. Uh, the, the Word of God was elevated. Uh, secondly, exclusive living appreciates God's standards. It appreciates God's standards. Once you've refocused on the Word of God, uh, then you begin to apply God's Word. Uh, so he says, so it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut. No more are we going to allow people to go in and out of the gates to meet with these pagan merchants from other foreign lands that were, you know, lurking right outside the gates you know hey come buy these wares and, and no longer are we going to allow that i'm going to shut the gates they cannot be opened until after the sabbath and i posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the sabbath we're not even going to do any work on the sabbath either bringing in loads of the crops that you had from out in your fields see exclusive living appreciates god's standards and then naturally it's going to insulate god's people it's going to insulate God's people. The doctrine of separation is a vital part of God's divine design for human relationships. God made us this way. He wants us to stick together. Not in a hateful, uncaring, ungracious way. As I said, the Bible wants us to be friendly, just not friendship. Because we're a part of the family of God. Uh, so I love this uh, nice choice little passage here. Now the merchants and sellers, merchants is foreign merchants there, of all kinds of wares loaded outside Jerusalem once or twice. So I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. I love that. Nehemiah was passionate about this important principle. And as a good leader of all the other reforms that he instigated, he was going to make sure that this came to a stop. And indeed it did. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath right? They knew he meant business. 
See, Proverbs says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools, companion of fools will be destroyed. He, Paul told the Corinthians, Come out from among them and be separate. He's quoting Isaiah here. Says the Lord, Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. See, there is a distinction between being part of the family of God and being in fellowship with God. We're all part of the family of God the moment you place your faith in Christ, and nothing can change that. It's, it's permanent and it's instant. Your spiritual DNA is changed. But then as a believer, we're called to, to maintain that fellowship, to abide in Christ, to remain close to Him. And to the extent that we do that, then God receives us and welcomes us. Jesus told the disciples, if you abide in me, I'll be your disciples. You know, I mean, you'll be my disciples. We'll be, we'll be close. Uh, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that, that we should withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. So even within the family, sometimes if you've got a believer who's acting like an unbeliever and dishonoring the Lord's name and bringing shame to the body of Christ and Christianity, there's a time to separate from them as well. That's just biblical. Not easy to do. It's not easy to do at all. In 35 years of ministry, we've had multiple uh, times, sadly, when we've had these kinds of issues come up. And it is not, this is not an easy principle uh, to uh, apply uh, because, I, you know, I lean toward graciousness. You know, I just, I, I, grace is so important to me. I just, I believe the best in people. I want to give second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, you know. But sometimes we're not doing them any good when we, you know, embrace sinful behavior. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, for example, I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, drunkard, extortioner, not even to eat with such people, right? So sometimes exclusive living means separating from sinning believers. So exclusive living in an inclusive world. As the world becomes more and more inclusive, it's going to be much harder for believers to maintain their focus while everyone on the other side of the glass is trying to get your attention, cause you to misstep, cause you to, to, to move in the wrong direction, cause you to do something other than what you're being called to do. And, it, and, and this is the world that we live in. But we need God's people to continue to live exclusively. So back to the first two questions I asked, is it okay for God's people to associate with just anyone? No, not really. Are there certain people that should be avoided by God's people? Yeah. Yeah, there are. So three dangers of inclusive living. Inclusive living marginalizes God's word by taking its cue from the world instead of the Bible and pushing the Bible down on the levels of priority. Inclusive living compromises God's standard because once you've marginalized the Bible, it's a slippery slope to simply ignoring its commands. And then it paganizes God's people. But there are three benefits of exclusive living. And exclusive living uh, helps you remain separate from the pagan influence of the world all around you by elevating God's word, by appreciating God's standards, and ultimately by insulating God's people. The doctrine of separation is a vital part of God's divine design, and yet it doesn't get much attention these days. So here's the takeaway. Here's the... Uh, the takeaway, you've heard me say this in different contexts. I picked this up about 20 years ago, 20 years ago or so, 2006, so not quite 20 years, from a good friend. We've since kind of lost contact. 
But he said this, and I'll never forget it. I've used it a lot. You'll never end up acting like the people you don't hang around. Think about that. You'll never end up acting like the people you don't hang around. Show me a believer who's living in carnality, living a profligate life, backslidden, you know, away from the Lord. And every time I can tell you who they're spending their time with. It's not on fire Christians devoted to the Word of God, devoted to the Lord, spending time in church. That person probably hadn't been in church for a long time. Or if they have, they're going to a church that is encouraging them in their inclusive living instead of calling them to exclusive living. Show me a, a godly Christian who's on fire for the Lord, praying, reading the Word of God, fellowshipping with other believers. I can guarantee you who they're spending their time with. Because you never end up acting like the people you don't hang around. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder. It's a tough principle, but it's one that uh, we see exemplified in Nehemiah's day in the Jewish people. We pray that you'd raise up men and women today that are bold and strong enough to stand alone, even when all of the worldly winds are blowing a different direction. Lord, I pray that you would just gently rebuke those believers within the sound of my voice that, uh, that may not be as exclusive as we should be. And for those who may be listening to this or watching this video and not know you, I pray that today in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. And that they would recognize that only He uh, can give them eternal salvation. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.